Greetings and welcome to the Five By, your favorite source for rapid fire board game reviews and a proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Before we start, a quick reminder that you have until the end of July to submit an application for the Inside Voices Media Fellowship. To find out more, visit bit.ly slash IVF news. This episode, we have Calvin joining us again to discuss the Legend of Korra Pro-Bending Arena. Lindsay finds herself very bemused. Ruth delivers a solid review of Junk Orbit. Sarah tells us about her adventures with the Machine of Death. And Ruel is all about building up routes in Japan with trains. The Legend of Korra is one of my favorite animated series of all time. It has so many things it wants to say about imperialism, inequality, post-traumatic stress disorder, fascism. Unfortunately, this did lead to my disappointment when I found out that the game, designed by Jeffrey Wright and Seng Fung Lim, was going to focus on one small aspect of the world, which was the sport of pro-bending. Disappointed though I was, I wanted to support the game, and thus, when it finally arrived, and I unpacked the frankly ridiculous number of miniatures, I found myself with a two-player head-to-head tactical game that had surprising depths and incredible amount of care put into its design. The Legend of Korra Pro-Bending Arena, published by IDW Games, with miniatures by Mark Fitzpatrick, whose other board games work includes Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shadows of the Past, is played on a diamond-shaped court surrounded by water. Two teams, consisting each of an earth, fire, and water bender, who are like magicians basically, who can control these elements with their minds, face off against each other, with the ultimate goal being to knock the other team out or occupy the other team's space by the time the round is called. Gameplay itself is carried out through the use of cards. Players will have cards they can play corresponding to either their water, their fire, or their earthbender, and these cards will let you maneuver through the arena, or fire attacks into the enemy's zones, or short up your own zone's defenses. By playing these cards, you can make your benders duck and weave and dodge around the arena and conjure blasts of fire, bolts of water, and chunks of earth across, trying to knock your opponents back make them take damage, or trap them in a barrage of elements so that they are unable to escape. Players take turns going back and forth. I play three cards, you play three cards. And at the end of each turn, adding new cards from their strategy deck to their main deck, adding a light element of deck building to tune your strategy. In practice, this game feels like a spell-slinging slugfest as players jockey for position, trying to land damage while avoid it at the same time. When you finally land a great combo, it feels so good to watch your enemy bender lose their footing and get pushed back out of the arena, out, gone, forever. So far, so miniatures-based card game, right? You play cards, you do the thing, you have the effect. Here's where the real genius of the design work comes in. You have three colors of cards in your deck, each corresponding to one of the three elements. And each of those elements can only be played on the appropriate bender. Earthbenders cannot bend fire, neither can they bend water. This leads to situations where you really need your firebender to do something that turn, for example, move one step to the left so she won't get knocked out of the arena, but you didn't draw any fire cards. At first you feel, oh man, this sucks, I really wanted to do this thing with my firebender but I didn't draw any cards for her, Hmm, maybe I should have constructed my deck better or maybe not bought so many water cards because my waterbender's not in a great position. And then you start to clock to the fact that you can predict this about your opponent as well. If you see them buying tons of earth cards, Maybe it's time to focus down their other two benders, catch them flat-footed and get them with a sudden knockout. And now they're down to two benders. Or maybe if you got really lucky, now they're down to one bender and you think, aha, three versus one, I've got him on the ropes now, right? Except his deck is full of earth cards. So that one earth bender now suddenly does three actions per turn. Three sets of attacks, three sets of defenses, three sets of movement. And you're struggling to pin down this one guy who's 
rolling all over the place and shooting earth back and forth at you, swatting away your attacks and counter-barraging with an earthquake. So many times I've played this game, it's come down to that last bender alone, sometimes cornered, fighting back with all their strength against the other team. And it feels so awesome to be in that situation, like you are suddenly a master of the elements and you can bend the world to your will and fight back against impossible odds. Of course, it doesn't always work, but that's the whole part of the strategy of the game. Now, the game isn't perfect. There are issues with the rules being slightly too obtuse in some locations, and sometimes you have to remember one too many upkeep steps. But there are so many teams in this box. I haven't even started doing any team construction, deck construction. There's a four-inch high stack of dirty trick cards I haven't even started to play. I must have played this game like half a dozen times already, and I only ever play the two starting teams with the tutorial rule set and there's still so much depth and strategy. I haven't even mentioned the expansion that brings co-op mode where you fight against iconic villains of the series. There is so much game here. I cannot recommend it enough if you're looking for something that's head-to-head, that plays fast, that's really satisfying and deep with so many combinations just waiting to be explored, especially if you're a fan of this series and this universe. You will geek the heck out. That's The Legend of Korra Pro Bending Arena. I've been Calvin with the Ding and Den Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to The Five Bye. Hello, it's Lindsay here. and this episode, I'm going to talk a little about Jim Feli's Bimeos. Published by his company, Devious Weasel. Illustrated by Tani Pettit and Noam Robinson. It plays 4-6 to six and has a 15-30 minute duration. I came to know Jim through Twitter last year and I was more than happy to review Bimeos. Initially, I was drawn to the game when hearing about its unusual theme and also having seen the beautifully illustrated box art. It's very much a social game, but in no way a social deduction game or even a party game. It kind of sits in the category of its own. The problem I found was getting it to the table is it's four players plus. Last year I mostly played two player games and didn't have a gaming group, so we had my brother and his girlfriend around who were newbie gamers. In Bemuse, you are playing as a muse who is on mission to elevate human virtuoso to great heights. And you can choose between the dancer, the painter, the thespian, the singer, the musician and the poet. But since your virtuosos are doing pretty well already in their art, you are now seeking to destroy each other via insanity and hopefully even death. You can achieve this by planting seeds of dreads and doubts, which are coloured cards, which also include words and icons. And the colour of the doubt card depicts the type of virtuoso it associates with. You begin the game with a hand of five cards, including one dread, plus an unrevealed gem and a card and a secret, which I'll move on to shortly. Whilst you are still sane, you draw two doubt cards into your hands and are able to take two actions on your turn if you chose. You can plant a doubt, instill a dread, or use your virtuoso or gem in his ability. These are individual abilities that can move, change, or remove doubts and dreads from yourself and each other. A combination of five dreads and doubts in a player will drive them insane, which limits the amount they can achieve on the turn, but also reveals the insane player's Gemini card. An insane virtuoso can regain sanity, but if they receive further dread in the meantime their insanity kills them, but the phantasm can still haunt the remaining players. The Gemini card represents the virtuoso, so that's another player, and once revealed you can use that virtuoso's ability as well as your own, which translates to you can use another player's card. Your secret card adds an extra layer, as these reveal your hidden feelings towards your Gemini, i.e. another player. So maybe you secretly hate them and wish horrible death upon them, Therefore, if the player is a phantasm at the end of the game, you'll gain further points for their death. The game end is triggered when there are fewer than two same virtuosos left. There are some rules around what players can and can't do depending on the state of their character throughout the game. 
Despite this sounds a little bit what the hell, it does fall into place and make perfect sense when playing, because in terms of mechanics it's pretty straightforward, but it has some subtle complexity about it and the terminology to wrap your brain around. The way the rules shift form with the virtuoso state changes takes a couple of games to pick up on, but it's really clever. I like how it gets players questioning each other's motives and not fully trusting one another and making allies, but it relies on some familiar hand management to make it fairly comfortable territory for those that are familiar with card games. The dual use of the cards, the choices you make with them and the virtuoso secrets give the game some healthy bite, good old fashioned objectives to aim for and make some thinky decisions as to what you can do with your cards and actions throughout. What I enjoyed the most is how you can't really tell who's playing who until it's too late and it's not really too late because you get to haunt other people when you die. So this is where the good stuff begins if you're into bluffing, scheming and just being a bit of an arse. But this is also where the problems can arise if you haven't got the right blended players to also enjoy that sort of thing. The rulebook encourages, and I quote, shameless table talk, and to weave a narrative around each other's characters. If your players aren't particularly social or a theatrical bunch, then it could fall a little flat, where you can just start slapping dreads and doubts on each other whilst exclaiming, ha, which is kind of what happened with my self-assembled group at first, and it took some effort to get it going. I actually really enjoyed the game despite being unfamiliar with hand management, but it did know a fair bit about bluffing and eventually being arses. The fact that they wanted to play more games, which we did, was brilliant. I think it's actually a pretty good gateway game in some respects for those that don't play games at all or might just buy it as a one-off to play with a gaggle of cool friends, because I think that sometimes as a game you can be cursed with knowledge. Once you know a thing and can't unknow it, you compare games with one another, wonder why it just doesn't do it this way instead of that way, or isn't a bit more like this game or that game, which aren't bad things, but to a person who has only ever played classic toy shop games, this could be mind-blowing. And sometimes I want to go back to a time when everything game-related was new to experience that feeling. As I previously mentioned, the artwork is a wonderful addition. It's diverse and lays with intentional nuances about the characters and the tarot-sized cards actually do resemble tarot cards and are a wild mashup of colour and intricacies, which serves to encourage some flamboyancy and theatrics, which as mentioned is possibly Sun Gamer's idea of a special kind of hell. But Muse is a great choice if you're looking for something going beyond gameplay mechanics that's kind of asking you to look at how you react when a certain action is performed, the kind of character you want to become in the game setting, how you respond, who you form alliances with and why. It's almost like a game of social experimentation, one that works like a good game should. It just might not be appropriate and suitable for everyone in their gaming circle and could possibly lead to some very awkward experiences waiting to happen. But for me personally, I really rather like Bemused. If you want to play Bemuse Me one day or fancy some videos I write in, visit my Instagram or YouTube where I'm Shiny Half Meeples, like my Facebook page, Shiny Half Meeples, or pop on my blog, shinyhalfmeeplesco.com. Bye for now. Five by listeners, it's Ruth here, back from Origins, Alaska, and RuthCon, and ready to talk about one of the games that joined my collection during that recent break. Back in 2014, Daniel Solis released Penny Farthing Catapult as part of his Smart Play Games line. This was a quirky little card game of Victorian nobles shooting items at each other, causing their rickety catapults to roll backwards. Fast forward to 2018, and the newly released Junk Orbit from Daniel, published by Renegade Game Studios, is a reimagining of this unique movement system that uses it to enable players to make deliveries between Earth, the Moon, and Mars in an effort to beat out the competition. 
Each player takes control of a ship loaded with cargo in need of delivery. But these are terrible ships, cobbled together from whatever could be found, and with no working engines. Luckily, players can use gravitational orbits and Newtonian physics to get around. That's right, since each action has an equal and opposite reaction, flinging some cargo or nuts and bolts out of a ship should move that ship in the opposite direction. And that's exactly what players are going to do. On a turn, the active player grabs a piece of cargo from their hold, which has been labeled with both where it needs to go and the number of points it's worth if delivered. They're going to launch said junk, as let's face it, no one trusts these ships with any of the good stuff, and send it a number of spaces equal to its point value. If it happens to land where it's addressed to, then it's going to be delivered and added to the player's point stack. Otherwise, it simply comes to rest and stacks on top of the junk already there. If that junk happens to be sent to a location containing another ship, well, it hits them, forcing them to drop something and add it to that same stack. The active player will then move their ship in the opposite direction from where they threw the junk, moving the same number of spaces. If they have any junk in their hold that was labeled for their new space, then it's flipped into their delivered stack. The player then picks up all of the junk they're now sitting on and adds it to their cargo hold, either to be delivered later or flung out for more movement. Players keep going until they're unable to refill a space, and then they'll add up the value of everything delivered and determine who wins. One of the things I really love about Junk Orbit is that it scales beautifully. I haven't actually played 2 player, but I have played 3, 4, and 5, and it's felt very similar each time. At 4 and 5 players, you just add 1 or 2 moons around Mars and extra tiles, increasing the locations available and adding some higher value junk, which lets you earn both more points and move further distances to get to the new terrain. It works really well, and it doesn't add a lot of complexity to setup, since you're just making sure you have the tiles labeled for the right player count. Adding to the variability of Junk Orbit is the fact that each ship comes with two unique ship powers for their pilot to choose between. Each will break the rules in a specific way. You can make a ship more aggressive, make it more wily, and some just add extra adaptability. They're all fun to play around with and can suit various playstyles. I haven't actually used the same power more than once, and I've seen different players use the same ship power very differently, which I really like. It's a very silly theme overall, but there's solid interesting gameplay underneath. And being able to change up how I approach this gameplay means I can see myself playing it a lot. Especially because it's really just a lot of fun. And the game is just as beautiful as it is fun. The junk illustrations are really nice, the punchboard boards and tiles are chunky enough to manipulate, and as you lay them out to create the board, you can add some extra space for fingers between them if people have dexterity issues. The ship tokens in Junk Orbit are easily distinguished by both shape and color, though I do seem to keep playing the black ship on a black table, so I might need to add some silver details to mine. The colors of the ships pop out easily from the red, blue, and white planet boards and from the more colorful junk tiles which keeps things easy to understand visually. Well, for the most part. The moon locations can be really hard to read on the tiles and on the moon board, since for some reason they have grey text on a white background. It's caused a lot of issues in my game, and it can slow down a turn when someone has to keep triple checking where Kepler is, for example. And then there's the box. The Junk Orbit box, well, it's controversial. It comes in a tube, which I personally hate. 
It's very eye-catching, and I'm sure it works beautifully in a store display, but it's an absolute pain to store at home, and when I first opened mine, all of the components were jumbled together in a very poor-quality plastic bag that had already burst open, spilling things everywhere. The bags included weren't even capable of holding the tiles, so I had to replace them, and honestly, I'm probably going to also replace the box. But it's at least a very appropriate size for its contents, unlike many of the games on my shelves. And if you do have the space to display it, it's very prettily illustrated. Inside this questionable box, what you get with Junk Orbit is a quick-playing, easy-to-teach game that can get surprisingly brain-burning as players try to figure out which tiles they can afford to use to move, groaning when they realize the only tile with the value they need is one they plan to deliver later. The little bit of meanness in the game is tempered by the fact that junk-to-ship contact is usually just a side effect of someone's good turn and not the purpose of their actions, so it doesn't have that vindictiveness. It has chaotic, silly fun, but it's also now a thing of beauty that I can see having significant lasting power due to Daniel's powerful ability to squeeze so many interesting decisions into a short playtime. I highly recommend giving Junk Orbit a try if you're ever offered the opportunity. And after all, who doesn't want to pilot the good ship Puddle Jumper? So until next time, you can reach me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. I love storytelling games, and I love witty webcomics, so I pretty much had to love Machine of Death, the game of creative assassination. Machine of Death was created by game designer David Foden and webcomic artist Chris Straub and David Malky, creator of Wondermark, and published in 2013. The game is based on a book of short stories of the same name, Edited by Malky, Matthew Bernardo, and Ryan North, creator of Dinosaur Comics and writer of Squirrel Girl. Machine of Death's premise is that there's this machine that can accurately predict the cause of death for any person. The machine of death, if you will. Predictions come on little cards that are 100% accurate, but often vague and misleading. For example, someone might get a card saying old age and think that meant they were going to live a long life no matter what they did. They get a fancy sports car and start driving recklessly, only to die in an accident with an elderly driver with poor vision. They were killed by old age, but not in the way they expected. Machine of Death is a cooperative game in which you play a team of assassins who've been assigned a series of targets. For each target, you draw their death card and then draw three gift cards, so-called because they look like store gift cards. Each gift card represents an object you have to use in the assassination plan. The game comes with hundreds of gift cards, and David Malky's wry sense of humor shines through in every one. I could spend my entire five minutes just reading these cards, but here's one example. Redeemable for something only children believe in. For example, Tooth Fairy, Monster Under the Bed, The Fairness of the Political System. Brought to you by, well isn't that just precious? When you patronize us, we patronize you. The game comes with a series of missions you can play, each one containing bios on four targets. You get information on what the target likes and dislikes, their skills and weaknesses, and a location where you'll find them. The missions are drawn mainly from webcomics, like Dinosaur Comics, Questionable Content, Diesel Sweeties, and of course Wondermark, plus non-comic missions like Choose Your Own Adventure Hamlet, and some more obscure references. If you've ever wanted to plot the assassination of a self-transforming machine elf, this is the game for you. There are also instructions for generating your own targets if you finish all the missions, or if creative and silly ways to kill webcomic characters isn't your thing. But if that isn't your thing, you're probably not playing Machine of Death anyway, so for those who do play, go ahead and use the missions. After gathering mission information and drawing gift cards, you flip a coin to see if the target knows what's on their death card. Now it's time to create a plan. 
The plan has to include all three gift cards and incorporate the information in the mission dossier. In the last game I played, we did the Choose Your Own Adventure Hamlet mission, which included Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, King Claudius, Ophelia, and Hamlet. The dossier said that King Claudius had great powers of persuasion, and if the assassins got within earshot of him, the mission would fail. So we sent him an invitation to one of those silent discos where everyone wears headphones. Most importantly, the plan has to end with the demise specified on the death card. Each death card comes with hints that suggest possible interpretations. For instance, chaps could mean cowboy pants, fellows, or dry skin. I suggested we poison King Claudius's chapstick, but since he knew about the death card, that wasn't going to work. So our chaps were a gang of dancing male assassins who surrounded Claudius at the silent disco. Once the team is happy with the plan, the timed phase of Machine of Death begins. You flip over a 90-second sand timer and start rolling a die for the success of each step in the plan. Anytime you fail a die roll, you have to draw a new gift card and come up with a new idea on the spot that will still get you to the next step of the plan. I love the combination of timed and untimed storytelling. The first phase lets you be deliberate, careful, talk things out as long as you want. Then the timed phase has everyone shouting out ridiculous ideas as fast as they can. You set your own difficulty level for the die rolls, and I think Machine of Death works best if you have at least some high difficulty rolls in there to ensure you get to do the frantic card drawing and plan rewriting. If you just roll three successes and call it a day, that's not much fun. The rather narrow focus of Machine of Death may make it easier than more open-ended storytelling games like Once Upon a Time, especially for players who aren't totally at ease with improv. On the other hand, that same narrow focus means Machine of Death doesn't have as much replayability. Once Upon a Time can go in any direction the players want, but Machine of Death is pretty much always going to be the same thing. A funny, weird, Rube Goldberg assassination plot. I wouldn't play it every day. But then again, I've played Machine of Death with serious gamers, casual gaming friends, and people who never played a modern board game before, and it's always worked. I've never had a bad game of Machine of Death. Every game, everyone ends up laughing and having a great time. The only people I'd steer away from it are those who don't find Wondermark funny. And those people probably don't want my opinion about anything. And that's Machine of Death. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not plotting the assassination of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hello, 5 by listeners. This is Ruel Gaviola. Let's check out Trains, designed by Hisashi Hiyashi, with art from Ikaan Studio and Ryo Niyamu, published by AEG in 2012. In Trains, you and your opponents manage Japanese rail companies, hoping to expand your railways throughout Tokyo. You score points in three main ways, by building stations on cities, laying rails in remote cities, and for adding certain cards to your deck. Using the same deck-building mechanism as Dominion, you play five cards from your personal starter deck. Unlike Dominion, there's no limit to the number of cards you may buy or add to your deck or actions you may play. If you can afford it or complete the action, then you're good to go. Like Dominion, you have a choice of several stacks of different cards to buy and power up your deck. Each card has its cost and buying power listed, and most will also have an action that triggers upon play. Unlike Dominion, there's a board depicting a map of Tokyo. You won't just be trying to optimize your deck in trains, since the point of the game is to expand your railway empire throughout Tokyo. There are two basic cards that drive most of the action on the map, lay rails and station expansion. Play the Lay Rails card to add one of your rail cubes adjacent to one of your other cubes. If it's on a certain type of terrain, or if an opponent or building occupies the space, 
you'll have to pay extra by using the income you've generated from the cards on your turn. Play the Station Expansion card to add a station from the common supply of stations to a city. If you have one of your rail cubes in a city with one or more stations, then you'll score points at the end of the game. The game ends immediately when one player has laid all of their rail cubes on the board, four piles of cards are bought, or the common supply of stations is depleted. The most points wins. Dominion is the 800-pound gorilla of deck builders, and Trains finds its own unique place within the genre. I like how you're trying to accomplish two things at once in Trains. You're trying to build an efficient deck like in Dominion, but you're also trying to build your network of railways to the point-scoring cities a la Ticket to Ride. The game ensures that you can't focus entirely on building your deck. If you ignore the board, you'll get hammered by your opponents who are laying rails and building stations, while you worry too much about making the most efficient deck possible. Those station points at the end will swing the game heavily in their favor if you haven't built anything. So you'll eventually wind up battling for city spaces on the map, but it's not a zero-sum battle. You can always build a point-yielding station in an opponent's city, but you'll pay extra to do so. It's this increased player interaction in trains that makes for a far better gaming experience. Veteran Dominion players will recognize similar cards in trains. There's the low money value of a normal train, think copper in Dominion, the high victory point and deck clogging value of a skyscraper, much like Dominion's province card, and the additional three cards given to you by the control room, which is what the smithy does in Dominion. And there are other cards that are direct descendants of Dominion, giving you additional money and or actions. But you use them in different ways in trains, whether it's laying rails or building stations in cities. There's a lot of replayability built into trains, since each game offers 16 types of cards to choose from for your deck. There are 8 basic cards in each game, while the other 8 cards are variable. Anytime you build something, you take a waste card. These waste cards are simply that, a wasted card in your deck. I like the use of waste cards in trains. With all of the building going on, you're forced to think about the impact you're having on the environment. As the game chugs along, more often than not, you'll draw a hand of four or all five waste cards. Thankfully, you always have the option of using your turn to return any waste in your hand to the supply, thus freeing up your deck. It's a cool little thematic element that affects gameplay by making it more difficult to string along those big Dominion-style combos. It also means turns are played much more quickly in trains. The game works at all player counts, but is best at four players since it guarantees the most interactions. Games typically move along at a nice pace before players start trying to quote-unquote invade other cities, thus ensuring that they aren't locked out of the high-scoring cities. However, my wife and I enjoy playing the head-to-head -head game. It's a more mellow experience as we roam around Tokyo unfettered, building stations and generally staying out of each other's way. If you want more interaction for two players, then you can buy or download one of the expansion maps which are half the size of the normal board. This ensures that you and your opponent will run into each other. Speaking of expansions, it's sort of disappointing that Trains only has one standalone expansion, Rising Sun. This includes a new set of cards that can be mixed in with the originals, and it includes maps for all player counts. It's a terrific expansion, but I'm perfectly content playing the base game. Trains has Ticket to Rise network building with Dominion's card-driven play. It's the perfect mix of two of the best gateway games that provides a satisfying blend of mechanisms and gameplay. And given a choice, I'd rather play Trains instead of Dominion. Thanks for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. You've been listening to The Five Vibe. Follow us on Twitter at Five Vibe Games. 
Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5bygames. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or head over to our website, 5bygames.com. From all of us at the 5 by thanks for listening. The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.